Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you're enjoying this new season of the show where we connect college and university students with AEI scholars and end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in college. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation between AEI's Christopher Scalia and Executive Council student Thomas Gilmore on American jurisprudence and the legacy of Chris's dad, Justice Antonin Scalia. Before I turn it over to Thomas, I want to let you know that we just launched the application for AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program. Our Summer Honors Program is really the flagship opportunity for students to engage with our think tank, and it takes place each June, offering students the opportunity to come to D.C. for a week of all-expenses-paid seminar discussions with our nation's leading scholars. In addition to diving into topics like the changing nature of warfare, the promise of American pluralism, challenges posed by technology, and the morality of capitalism, students will get to meet and engage with others from across the country and ideological spectrum. To learn more and to apply to AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program, just check out the link in our show notes. And to stay most up-to-date with all of our work here at AEI, consider joining our year-round Executive Council program. You can follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss an episode of the Campus Exchange. Enjoy today's conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Thomas Gilmore, and I'm a senior here at Ave Maria University studying politics and economics, and today I'm happy to be speaking with Chris Scalia. Dr. Chris Scalia is a senior fellow in the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Department at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on literature, culture, and higher education. He spent three years as the director of AEI's Academic Programs Department, where he led educational and professional development programs and events for college students around the country. His articles, essays, and reviews on literature, music, higher education, and other topics have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, and among other outlets. Dr. Scalia is the co-editor of On Faith, Lessons from an American Believer, and Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived. His forthcoming book, 11 Conservative Novels You Must Read But Probably Haven't, will be published by Regenerate Publishing in 2024. Dr. Scalia has a PhD and an MA in English from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he has a BA in English with a minor in history from the College of William & Mary. Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Thomas. It's my pleasure. So while I'm sure many of our listeners are more than aware of your father and his legacy as a Supreme Court Justice, what many people may not know is that he had a close friendship with his fellow Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Although they certainly did not see eye to eye on a lot of judicial matters, they maintained a strong friendship throughout their almost 25 years of serving on the court together. So my question to start off today would be, how was it that these two people, who were seen as pretty much complete opposites on the bench, (laughs) managed to develop and maintain such a good friendship? Well, just in case any listeners are not familiar with who my father was, I'll fill in that uh, bit of information uh, very briefly first. Uh, My father was Justice Antonin Scalia, who served on the Supreme Court from 1986 until uh, his passing in 2016, so just under 30 years on the court. And he was kind of the most forceful advocate of uh, jurisprudence known as originalism, 
according to which justices interpret the Constitution according to its original public meaning. Um, and the, uh, this is called textualism when that same approach is applied to interpreting laws and statutes. And uh, as you said, he was very good friends with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who uh, did not share in his originalist interpretation. And as a result, they were often on opposite ends of some pretty significant decisions. They, they were avatars for their respective approaches to the Constitution. Um, you know, the notorious RBG uh, became kind of a common image you saw everywhere. Uh, she was on T-shirts and, and things like that. She was the ultimate uh, Supreme Court justi justice for people who are left of center. And my father was kind of a, a version of that for uh, conservative followers of the Supreme Court and, and lawyers. But they had a friendship, uh, a, a very long friendship uh, that began, really, really took hold in the early 80s when they were on um, the uh, federal appeals court together in the early 80s. And their friendship began because they... Um, they, re they had similar work habits. In, in particular, they, they liked reading each other's drafts of opinions. Um, at that point, and this is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in the early 80s, they were really the only people who wanted to do that. Um, when, they, when they tried to have some of the older judges uh, try to give them feedback, the older judges didn't like it. So they, they, they formed kind of a mutual improvement society is the term they used. So they, they had similar work habits, but they had also had similar personalities in, in ways. They, uh, um, while they were both New Yorkers, she was born a few years before him. They grew up in different boroughs, but I think they kind of recognized that New York personality in each other. And they both enjoyed opera, so they bonded over that. They both enjoyed good food, good wine. Her husband, Marty, was a, an excellent chef. So they had all sorts of things to bond over. And, and their spouses got along well, too. My mother and, and Marty Ginsburg were very close, too. So even when, as was often the case, they did not get along or agree with each other, I should say, and their opinions, and made that very clear in their opinions, uh, they, they always kind of had these other things to fall back on and kind of have as a, as a basis, basis for their friendship. So building off of that, and, and you, you mentioned a lot about how you can find those similarities in, in people who you may not see eye to eye on in certain mm -hmm. issues, how, do you, how would you describe sort of your, your dad's approach for engaging when they needed to, engaging in this civil discourse? Well, uh, he, was, he was passionate, <laughs> um, and you knew what his opinion was. And she was the, she was the same way. I mean, they didn't, they didn't pull any punches when they were... Uh, when they disagreed with each other or with other people. But they weren't angry, and there, there's an important difference. Uh, as long as we're at a, at a, a Catholic college here at Ave Maria, uh, the, the Catholic writer George Weigel has a, has a good column a few years ago from First Things about the difference between uh, passion and anger. Um, and, and passion is based on reason. And if you're passionate, you're still trying to persuade people Anger is, is more emotive and less productive. So I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind. So my father would uh, make, make his opinions clear uh, when, when he disagreed with people. But he also, he didn't like being in echo chambers. So he, he once told my brother, um, this was shortly after he had delivered a speech at, at my brother's college, he said to, said to him, never tell them what they want to hear. 
Um, and that was his way of basically saying, even if you're speaking to an audience that generally agrees with you, you need to challenge them. And I think that's that's part of civil discourse too. Is is challenging even people who agree with you to to get beyond their assumptions and to think critically even of of the things some of the ideas you may share together just sort of bringing this back to um, today's day and age um, you know in today's politics we hear a lot about the sort of political polarization and partisan politics that has become sort of the norm of you know your modus of operandi in mm -hmm. Washington and so my question would be why should our elected officials look to the friendship between your father and Justice Ginsburg as a sort of way to bridge the divide, you might say, and, and engage in this sort of healthy and meaningful discourse? Mm -hmm. It's important to preface this answer by making clear, I think it is harder for politicians to do this. Supreme Court justices do not run for their, they don't run for the bench. Uh, they, uh, and that means they don't have to they're not running against each other, and they, they don't have to pit their colleagues, make them seem like, you know, villains or anything like that, uh, as, as politicians are often tempted uh, to do uh, in campaigns. So I do think Supreme Court justices have that luxury. Nonetheless, I think that the, the friendship that my father shared with Justice Ginsburg make, makes clear that it is possible to have these close fr friendships despite, you know, very serious disagreements. And... I think having those friendships, if pol more politicians had friendships like that, and I should say I think a lot of them do, but if more of them did, I think there would be it would be harder for them to to demonize um, the people they're running against. I think it's obviously perfectly fair and valid to show the uh, downsides or the the shortcomings of particular policies and ideas, but uh, I think we see too often. On, on Twitter and on ads, uh, politicians are really kind of doing ad hominem attacks in ways that are really not healthy for where for a democracy. Um, and again, you, Supreme Court justices aren't tempted to do that. They don't really have the occasions to. Um, but I think closer friendships among politicians or just more opportunities to socialize with each other would would um, diffuse some of that situation. Of course, that always that always brings up. Um, you know the fear of uh, the uh, the DC cocktail party stereotype that uh, you know if you if you get too comfortable in DC you start going to these cocktail parties and you're no longer really looking out for the concerns of your constituents and I suppose there is that possibility but uh, I think that you know something closer to that danger is better than the the end we're on at the moment sort of along the same thread, I hear a lot of people today, both in D.C. and on college campuses, say that, you know, the other side, you know, they just couldn't even, they don't even know where to start that conversation because they disagree on everything. And so what would, what would you say and what do you think your father would say to that sort of side of the, of the debate who think that, you know, the dialogue that you're talking about, it's, it's not even possible anymore because we just can't see eye to eye on anything. And, and this happens, you know, in D.C. and, and a lot, mm -hmm. on a lot of college campuses as well. If we're just talking about friendships here, if you can't agree with somebody about anything, then yes, I could see why you would not want to be around that person. But if we're talking about friendships, friendships are based very often on things other than politics. And if you find yourself in uh, a friendship that uh, is made tense and um, unpleasant 
because of political conversations. Stop having the political conversations. I hope that's not a cop-out answer, but, um, but I do feel like one of the great things about America is that politics is not everything. And we should, it's important to have space and opportunity to discuss things about our community that are not necessarily about an election or a policy. As I said earlier, my father and Justice Ginsburg bonded over opera. Um, I don't imagine, you know, many, many listeners to this podcast have the opportunity to bond over that, but they will, they may have musical tastes in common with people um, that they disagree with otherwise. I think it's important to just focus on those things you have in common. And it can be difficult to steer away from political conversations, but for the sake of the friendship, do that. If you really want to talk about politics, ask questions and make it a more kind of question-oriented approach instead of one where you're trying to persuade somebody of something. If you approach it as an opportunity to just understand where this person who thinks differently than you comes from, it's going to be a more interesting and more enlightening conversation. And my hunch is the person would would appreciate that that type of conversation as well. And so sort of directing the conversation towards another topic of, of, you know, debate uh, these days regarding the court is, you know, over the past few months, um, there's been conversations going on in regards to how recent decisions uh, relate to the question of the court's legitimacy. Um, And, you know, the founders wrote extensively on the importance of the court maintaining a more independent system. Um, So how would you respond to the sort of critique that this is no longer necessary or no longer applicable and we need something different the supreme court is not democratic it's the least democratic branch of our government and it it frankly needs to be but much of its job is ensuring that congress and the executive branch do not violate uh for example the bill of rights um even if the people want to uh for example ban guns, or let me use a less controversial example, ban certain speech, that's much less controversial, they can't do that. And the Supreme Court is the bulwark ensuring that the, that the amendments and that um, you know, the, the, the other elements of the Constitution are protected. Now, because of that, there is often going to be an undemocratic element to the Supreme Court. I can see, though, why Um, Americans want it to be democratic and kind of expect justices to represent them. I think this this is kind of the inevitable result of a view of judging that's developed over the past 60 years in which my father worked very hard uh, against and to persuade people out of believing. Basically, it's called the living constitution approach. And according to that approach, the constitution is a living and breathing document that evolves with the changing norms and standards of a society. And basically, the ju- it's the role of justices to determine how it should actually evolve. That makes judges then basically the arbiters of the will of the people. That's not what they're there for. They're not elected by the people. Um, they have life terms precisely because they're not supposed to be the voice of the people. But uh, that's I think that's that misimpression is one reason we expect the court to be a democratic voice, but it's 
uh, very often its role will be rather to say, no, this this bill, this piece of legislation, this idea um, goes too far. That's going to upset people on the left and right, as it often does. But that's that's kind of that's not the only purpose of the court, but that's an imp- important function. Now, Chris, you, you recently had a, a job change, one might say, um, and you're diving into some new research and you're working on some new projects. I thought maybe could you talk to us about uh, a bit about what that, you know, what that new, new job looks like and, and what you're sort of diving into. I uh, earlier, well, this summer began, well, I moved from my position as director of academic programs. Uh, as you know, Jeff Pickering took over and is doing a great job. And I'm now, uh, as you mentioned, a senior fellow in social, cultural, and constitutional studies. And my beat is kind of arts, humanities, and higher ed. Uh, and my main focus at the moment is is that book you mentioned, which is building off my literary background by kind of presenting, essentially presenting a reading list, 11 novels that present conservative ideas thoughtfully and and are also very good novels. Uh, so the, the premise of the of this book is that when conservatives talk about fiction, they tend to talk about the same books again and again. And they're good books. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh is another one that they mention a lot. Uh, maybe The Lord of the Rings here and there. What I'm basically trying to do is expand the canon and bring other novels into the conversation that conservatives would enjoy, both because they're great fiction and because they present ideas that we espouse effectively, um, not uncritically, but, but in interesting and thought-provoking ways. For the, for the final question, which we ask to all of our guests here on the podcast, Chris, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were in college? I think that, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak the question a little bit and say, uh, I guess, advice I would have given myself, if I, if I can change the question that way. Um, would be to uh, I, w- I would have told myself to be ready to roll with punches. My uh, my career has gone directions I didn't anticipate, and they've been wonderful directions. And uh, I I kind of have well essentially my dream job at at AEI, and uh, I, I wouldn't have I didn't anticipate this position when uh, I was graduating from college. You know my my mission was to get a PhD, become a professor, which I did for a little while, but but things change. And what you want from life changes. Uh, so I think that's, that's important advice for people to keep in mind. You can make as many plans as you want, but you also need to be ready to recognize when those plans don't fit your life anymore. They don't fit where you want to take your family or what your spouse wants your family to become and things like that. You need to be ready for, to, for changes like that. Chris Scalia, thank you very much for thank joining you, us. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, great talking to you. Thank you. hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, 
Visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.